Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Mark Leslie Lefebvre. For those of you who don't know, Mark Leslie would be the first person to admit he's still afraid of the monster under his bed. Proudly adopting the term book nerd for himself, Mark is a writer, editor, and bookseller, and is most comfortable with a pen in hand, fingers on keyboard, or with his nose stuck in a book. Mark writes speculative fiction and true ghost stories under the name Mark Leslie, and then he tacks Lefebvre back onto his name as a book industry representative, where he has worked since 1992. Now, this is way cool. He's worked in numerous formats of bookstores and taken the roles of president of the Canadian Booksellers Association, director of self-publishing and author relations for Rakuten Kobo, and director of business development for draft to digital Mark's dark fiction is often compared to Twilight Zone or Black Mirror in terms of style exploring what-if themes with contemporary settings that include speculative elements, gently skipping around the genres of sci-fi, horror, and urban fantasy. He was also a keynote speaker for a 2014 Writers of Future Awards event in Hollywood. And I'm speaking to you in your home city of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you so much, John. It's great to be chatting with you again. Seems like forever. Well, it's because it pretty much has been forever. So uh, <laughs> I'm definitely glad we're back together. I guess... I mean, start off, I wanted to do my homework on this, and so I read some of your books, and um, I enjoyed them both very much. It was one was a novel and one was the short, and um, your Canadian werewolf in New York and then Stowaway. And I just got to say, I just anybody that's not familiar with it, they're really, really fun stories. They're Do you call them dark fantasy? Because I've just, they almost got dark and then they just stayed fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're 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 kind of urban fantasy, but with with some humor uh, in them as well. So, uh, but I, I, it's funny. I avoided the the brand urban fantasy because I was thinking, well, it's not as f- fantastical as like Jim Butcher stuff, like the the Harry Dresden files, even though it does involve a werewolf. Um, so yeah. it was a lot. It was a lot closer to contemporary thriller. But I realized yeah. that was not my target audience, and people people are okay with accepting that there's a werewolf, even though you never get to see, you don't really see much paranormal. But I I think I, I wrote a lot of it tongue in cheek, uh, kind of like you know dealing with the side effects of being a werewolf, you know, living in a major city. Like where would you go and change? Where would you run around as a wolf at night? Like how could how would you uh, how would those logistics work? And so I had a lot of um, I got a lot of fun uh, with that character. And, and so, yeah, that's been, it's been a really, it's been a really cool experience because he, he was born in a short story and, uh, and, and the short story is what kind of, um, friend of mine read it and said, well, what happens next? And I was like, well, I kind of like the character. Maybe, maybe I should see what happens next. Yeah. Your author discussion at the end of both uh, the book and the, and the, uh, short story were, were a fun little add on to like explain a little bit more what you're doing, but I really like your continuous homage to Spidey, to Spider-Man. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of Stan Lee and, uh, Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And, 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 and obviously as, as you noticed, that shows up repeatedly <laughs> throughout Michael Andrews. Cause I have the main character, um, you know, uh, wanting to use his powers, uh, for good, 
uh, and yeah. to help other people. So, so, so it's kind of like almost like superhero fiction in some ways, even though he never dons any sort of weird costume and, and, <laughs> and, and, and he does keep, keep his uh, identity anonymous. Like he wants to help people, but he doesn't want to stick around and take credit for anything. Yeah. Which is what he learned obviously from Spidey because Spidey never did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which means that okay. he could be up for a misunderstanding, right? Exactly. <laughs> There's going to be a J. Jonah Jameson somewhere, probably. Exactly. Anyway, Sonia, I really enjoyed reading those those books, and it gave me a good flavor for your, uh, I guess, the spirit of play with respect to your writing. It's just there are a lot of fun to read, you know. And another, like I said, in dark fantasy, when it starts getting dark, it just it goes dark. And with you, you you hint at it, and then it goes back. It's like it's refreshing. I mean, that's the kind of story I like. You know, if you want something that's just really, you know, dark and dark and dark, just read the news, news, news. So, <laughs> I don't no like it. So I, you know, so it's just, it was, I really, I was very pleasantly surprised when I read both of those things. I'm very anxious for when um, your protagonist makes it to Los Angeles next. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I do write horror and I write really nasty graphic horror. Like my novel, I Death, is actually disturbing and disgusting. <laughs> it's, you, it would not be your cup of tea. Uh, it's definitely no. very, very, very dark. But with Michael Andrews, with that character, I had a lot more fun with it. And I mean, ironically, um, I think it was, it was uh, you know, my visit to, uh, to Writers of the Future in 2014. Um, that helped uh, inspire some of some of the settings for this uh, novel. Other visits to uh, LA also uh, as inspired some of uh, some of the the things. But I thought it would be so much fun because I wrote um, the very first short story that became a Canadian werewolf in New York shortly after my first visit to New York, and then I was inspired by the idea, you know, shortly after my first visit to uh, LA to write Fear and Longing in Los Angeles, which I'm about halfway through. And that's, uh, it's, it's got to get to my editor very soon. So the next two, three days, it's going to be buckling down, uh, trying to get, you know, five, 5,000 words a day done if I can, 10,000 words a day, and then get that to my editor because it's coming out at the end of uh, February, uh, 2021. <laughs> and, uh, I, I have to say, um, like the neighborhoods, uh, that I got to visit and explore, uh, yeah. are included in it. I got to do, uh, well, fortunately, because it's been a while since I've been to, to you know, the neighborhood around the corner from the, the Hollywood Boulevard and um, and some of the neighborhoods that I, I got a chance to visit and, and walk through and run through when I was there. Um, but I have Michael walking through uh, a lot of those neighborhoods and, and it was really, really cool to kind of revisit it and use the Google Maps to, <laughs> to kind of go down <laughs> the street and see what's there. And yeah. uh, and even, even exploring... Um, some of the studios because he's he's there uh, as a, a, a film's being um, one of his books being turned into a film, so he's on the set. And so I had to find where one of the studios was, and then the logistics of the hotel cafe, which is just down the you know just off the strip, and a couple of the other uh, places that he had to go to. And it was even funny because I'm like, okay, this guy's got to come back to the set with a you know a really great like Reuben or smoked meat sandwich. Where in, where in LA can I get a good one? And then I did a whole bunch of research, have never been there, but I'm like, oh my God, next time I go to LA, I hope they're still open, yeah. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> affecting a lot of uh, businesses, but wow, that looks like a really good smoked meat sandwich. So yeah. I, I love that kind of research too. 
Well, that's good. Now, just as a point, since you mentioned when you were speaking in, in at the Rise of the Future event, I re-listened to your 2014 keynote speech where you spoke about long-term digital marketing strategies, apps that incorporate story and collaborations. So that was a pretty interesting topic back then, six years ago. Hmm. Where has that gone to now, and how do you see that moving forward into the future? You know, it's really funny. I, I, I look back at that at that talk and, and, and a lot of the things that I've seen happen in the industry and continue to happen, um, are, uh, have happened and, and, and are, and are, and are taking place. And I, and I, and I always refer back to that, to that, uh, speech now, fortunately, cause you know, the, the videos are on, on online and people can find them. But I, I remember when, when you guys asked me to talk about the future of publishing, I was like, oh my God, I, I, what, what's the future going to hold? <laughs> right? Like, you know, I know we write science fiction and we are always thinking about that, but the, the thought of publishing uh, being more collaborative than ever before was a, was a, was a central message. And, and, a, and I've, I've experienced that myself and I've seen that throughout the indie author community. I'm seeing uh, independent uh, authors go on to become publishers. And when, when I explore it back through the history of publishing, like I did in that speech, but I didn't get into some of these details. When you look at the origin of the world's largest publishers, like uh, Penguin Random House, uh, you look at uh, Random House was really uh, a couple guys who said they were going to publish books on the side at random. And, uh, you know, Penguin started off with, um, with, with a specific type of format, like the classics that they were doing, as well as some of the mass market uh, paperbacks that were, you know, pretty integral for publishing. So when you look at the big publishers of today, they all started off with that same indie, indie spirit. So what I see from the self-publishing community is a lot of independent authors are now, you know, a Michael Anderley of the um, 20 books to 50K, uh, you know, uh, who, he's a science fiction writer. And, and his publishing company just hired um, Robin Cutler, who had run Ingram Spark and had worked in traditional publishing for a significant number of years. And so you're seeing this amazing cross-collaboration between authors and other authors, between publishers and authors, between authors and their communities. You think about science fiction writer like maybe Brandon Sanderson and the Kickstarter that he ran in uh, 2020, where he, he was bringing in millions of dollars. So I think uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about the continued future of opportunity for writers through all walks of publishing, you know, through the amazing opportunity, the, you know, the, the unfounded, uh, unprecedented opportunity that writers have to get discovered through the writers of the future, the writers and illustrators of the future. And that's like, that's, there's still nothing like it uh, on the market. So that is a, a traditional publishing opportunity that uh, I think opens incredible doors uh, for authors. And of course, there's all these other opportunities that our uh, authors have access to, whether it's short fiction, whether it's, you know, novellas or novels, whether it's uh, audiobooks, which have, you know, really, really grown in the last um I guess several, two, three years. I mean, I've been, I've been a fan of audiobooks for a long time because of my long commutes. I used to have long commutes into Toronto when I was working in the, in the Kobo office. It was, it was at least, you know, uh, probably two to four hours a day uh, where I was commuting. So there was a wow. great opportunity, you know, to listen to podcasts as well as to audiobooks. So yeah, I think, 
I, I think we're, we're, we're still just seeing the beginning of collaboration. When I look at um, draft to digital just launched a few months ago, the opportunity to publish collaboratively, publish eBooks and uh, print books and, and do royalty sharing uh, with, with various contributors. And the challenge, cause you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up here in Canada and I, and I've published uh, an, an anthology where I wanted to use payment splitting so that uh, the, um, the writers actually get ongoing funds as the, as the book sells. And the challenge with me is I, if I'm getting most of my sources, you know, from Amazon or draft to digital or Smashwords or, you know, a lot of American companies, I have to take that into Canadian funds. Then I have to translate it to Canadian where I always lose money from the bank. And then I translate yeah. it back to American to pay most of my contributors who are American. So, uh, you know, I love these tools that draft to digital have where they take care of the tax forms and they, they just pay the authors directly and I get my cut. <laughs> so it, it actually, uh, it saves me money. And it saves me time, and it saves me it saves me hassle. So I'm I'm really I'm really excited about the different tools that are um, that are out there for people to to collaborate. Well, we're collaborating right now, right? You're in you're in mm -hmm. Los Angeles, and, and I'm in Waterloo, Ontario, and and it's like we're just sitting across the table from one another, which is a very nice thing to be able to do that because um, otherwise it gets really expensive to uh, <laughs> to work together. <laughs> <laughs> not to mention pandemic wise, you know, you know, I'm not going to be able to travel to, to go hang out in a coffee shop with you. Exactly. So now I'm interested in how you've jockeyed so many career directions, author, speaker, consultant, publisher, um, your role at Kobo, and also as the president of, of the uh, Canadian Booksellers Association. Like, what was the inspiration? How did you jockey that? It's, it's quite impressive. Oh, thank you. Um, it, it, it's I think it's, uh, I followed my passion uh, from the beginning. So when I, when I was, uh, I went to university and I applied to get into the journalism programs because I was like, I wanted to be a writer and journalism is writing and I get paid to write. Great. Well, I wasn't smart enough to get into, uh, they were very, <laughs> they were very um, sort of cutthroat in terms of being able to get into uh, the journalism programs. They were very limited. So you had to have really, really high marks. And I didn't have high marks. I was more of a, you know, kind of a, low 80s kind of uh, student, so not a, not a, you know, 95 to 100. So I didn't get in, but I got into um, the English language and literature program and uh, got my degree in English. And I started working part-time in the book industry uh, in, my, in my final year of university, just a sort of a part-time job. And I got bit by the book bug. And I realized that I, I wanted, I always wanted to be a writer. And I thought, okay, if I work in a parallel industry where I get to be near books every day, that'll keep me satisfied personally while I slowly work my way up yeah, as, a, as a writer, you know, from selling copies, uh, getting paid copy, uh, contributor copies for small press magazines and slowly, you know, maybe hopefully one day winning writers of the future, <laughs> like all of the, all of the great <laughs> opportunities for short fiction. I, I never, I never did. And, uh, but, um, but those were the opportunities. Did you actually you enter the contest? Did you enter I writers of the future? I think I might've sent a couple stories off, uh, early on and I didn't, I didn't make the short lists. And then I think I ended up getting pro sales, so I I, I couldn't right because yeah, um, and and uh, but I, I probably didn't submit. I didn't realize how how many opportunities there were because again, when I started, there was no internet. When I started, it was kind of a, I always grew up in northern Ontario, as I was still you know typing manuscripts out to mail them up. So so it wasn't uh, access to the information was not as easy. But I think what happened was. 
I fell in love with the book industry and understanding the business of the book industry. And, and that passion grew in the same way that my passion for writing grew. So my passion became somewhat not divided because I can still be the same person uh, as a writer and as a bookseller. And, and I just, and I just kind of explored all of the opportunities available to me. And, and admittedly, I was very, very lucky. I was very lucky along the way to have met different uh, authors uh, along the way and uh, to have met different people from the industry. And then, uh, you know, the different roles I got into where I joined the board of directors uh, for the Independent Booksellers Association in Canada. And then once I started to get involved as a, as a campus, I was working at an academic bookstore that was independently uh, owned at the time. I guess I got passionate about it. I wanted to help. I wanted to see what I could do. And then the next thing I knew, I was being nominated <laughs> to run for president uh, and became president of the Booksellers Association, which of course, you know, uh, saw provided me with so many opportunities. I got the opportunity to um, hand a Lifetime Achievement Award to Margaret Atwood, uh, which was a huge honor for me. Uh, and then the following year, uh, the you know a life, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award to Alice Munro, and uh, like two another Canadian icon of the literary uh, circles. But then my role um, at Kobo uh, when we were launching Kobo Writing Life at Book Expo America in two thousand and. 12, I think it was, where I had the opportunity to interview Michael Connolly right in the in the Kobo booth in that little cozy little living room. I think I've I've been really, really lucky along the way when I think about all of the things that I've had the opportunity to do. I remember meeting uh, yourself and a few other folks from the uh, Writers of the Future at I think we met in Frankfurt, uh, Frankfurt Book Fair. Uh, if I recall, because I think Kevin Anderson, uh, yeah. we had a mutual friend, uh, Kevin, who's uh, one of the judges. And yeah. I, I think that's why I'm pretty sure that's when it was. And that's when, when we were talking about the possibility of, of me coming down to, to see this uh, amazing event with like the week uh, that the writers get. Um, and so I, I, I look at all of the different things that I've done. And when I, when I look back, it's, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of in shock and I, I'm kind of in awe of all the cool things this guy has got to do. And I realized that this guy got to do those things because he just stuck out, uh, stuck with his passion and continued to, um, apply whether it was writing or whether it was book selling, just, just apply that passion for books. Because at the end of the day, it's really about story, right? It's really about authors and mm -hmm. readers and the magic that happens when, a, when an author and a reader can come together. And that's what the entire book industry is really about. That's what, that's, you know, it's, we're storytellers. That's what we, that's kind of what we do. So that's, I guess, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I love the journey that I've been on and I look forward to the the other journeys that I, uh, I get to continue to go on. Um, but yeah, it is, it is kind of when you pause to look back, you go, wow, wow. I got to do a lot of really cool things. And, and yeah, I still consider cool. myself young. <laughs> so I'm hoping that there's a lot, a lot more ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Now, one of the things on your writing, since we're addressing the area now, like just, appealing to one's passion and sticking, sticking with it. 
you seem to be equally adept at, well, I've only read two, but you seem to be equally adept at writing novels as well as short fiction. How and or why do you do this? You get Bronte, who is the character in your short story collection in your Canadian Werewolf in New York story, is also the main character in the novels that Michael, your your protagonist, writes. I mean, it's like you've got short stories and novels in your stories as well as for yourself as a writer. That seems like a yeah. Looking at one of those, looking in a at a mirror and then see the mirror behind you and just keep on going deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of layers to it. So I think I think sometimes what happens is sometimes I'm struck with an idea. So yeah, as an example, um, a Canadian werewolf in New York was originally based on a 10,000 word short story. And the premise was it was for an anthology. You know, I was looking at the markets and the anthology was um, the monster within. And and the editor was looking for stories about the, the human side of a monster uh, and what it would be like. And I was like, oh, that'd be neat. Well, what, what if you were a werewolf? And what if you lived in like a big city like New York? And what if you woke up naked in Battery Park with a bullet in your leg and you had to figure out how to get home without keep that being seen? Well, why was that a concern? Well, because maybe you're a pseudo-celebrity. Oh, okay. Well, I, I obviously gravitated to author because that was one I knew very well. Didn't have to research as much. And... Um, and that was a short story because I had this story story arc. Hey, get get to your morning appointment, get some clothes, get there. Uh, and then I realized there was more to it. But sometimes a short story comes to me or an idea comes to me. And I don't know if it's going to be a novel or a short story until I start to play with it. Sometimes it's a concept and it's a really short story arc. And I know that I can do that within 2,000 to 10,000 words. Other times like with a Canadian werewolf in in New York or or fear and longing in Los Angeles, you know, that's going to be at 80,000 words. And, and like stowaway, which is a novella that was, I think the original draft of that was probably 25,000 words, but you know, working with an editor, I think we cut it down to 20, 20,000 words. So sort of novella like, yeah. and, um, and, and I think in some ways, it's harder to write a, a short story than it is to write a novel because with a novel, you can just kind of go and meander and you can explore the the secondary characters in more detail and you can have multiple subplots. Whereas with short fiction, you really have to tighten it up in a significant manner. But I think I, I write poetry, I write short fiction, I write articles, I write uh, novels, uh, novellas, and and I kind of just kind of maybe go with the flow. I go wherever the inspiration takes me. Now, sometimes I force myself into um, into something, but that might be, for example, let's say I'm writing a novel and I have a secondary scene or a moment with a, with a character, like a walk-on character, and that character takes over and suddenly becomes larger than life. And I really am loving exploring more with that character. I may end up cutting that from the novel but that character may come back in another book uh, or that character may come back in a short story somewhere. And I've done that multiple times where I've played with that. I've played with um, like Maxwell Bronte is a fictional character in a short story. And he's a completely different fictional character in, in that novel that Michael writes. And I do that because I really like to play uh, place Easter eggs for my readers so they can go, wait a second. Uh, I mean, one of my short stories, uh, short story collections, active reader, uh, the short story active reader has references to 15 of the small press magazines that I had stories published in. 
like they're just elusive little references. Uh, they, you don't all, all know that they're um, uh, magazines and, and, and they're not referred to as magazines, but the turn of phrase embeds the name of the magazine into something someone says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love doing those little things because I really, I really enjoy Easter eggs like that when, when you see a movie or you're reading a book uh, or even uh, you're listening to a song and you catch us. It's like a sample. And you're like, wait a second, was that a nod to this classic piece? <laughs> uh, I think that's that's a, that's a really really cool thing. I'm not sure if you've watched Bridgerton, uh, which is on Netflix streaming, but uh, it's it's a period piece set in like 18 something, and uh, and the the music that they play at the at these lavish balls, uh, the music is actually modern music like uh, Billie Eilish and stuff like that. And, and, and you're like, well, wait a second, that sounds familiar, but it sounds classical, but it's modern music. And so it's like this little tip or this little nod uh, to, to the modern era. And I love when literature uh, uh, can do that. Yeah. Well, that's good. And it's just, I, I just found it's just so interesting in, in your books, how one, how much of it is actually you, but the fact that your protagonist and then the story within the story is a parallel operating. And then obviously using the, the various names that you use that you just, um, like you're talking about, you just, it seems like you just, you have a lot of, you have a lot of fun. They're just very fun to read and, you know, keeping up with the story. You're just like, wow, that's pretty clever. Thank you. I really, uh, I really appreciate that. That's um, you've just made my day. Well, thank you. Um, now get me the next book. So <laughs> now a key topic I'm interested in discussing with you is the Canadian market and how to make it there, then how to break out of that market into others, such as the US or UK or or Australia, South Africa. A Canadian coming to New York to become a famous author, just a storyline or an intentional move on your part to bridge between the two countries. <laughs> oh yeah, I think uh, I, I think New York's one of the cities uh, that I could see myself living in. Um, and and, and uh, I'm I'm a small town Canadian. I grew up in a small town with like two thousand people in it. So, you know, uh, one of the world's largest cities is kind of a terrifying premise uh, for me at um, yeah at the best of times. And yet, when you go into any place, you really see that it's made up of neighborhoods of people of communities of 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 really wonderful communities and and my partner Liz and I uh, when we've spent well actually prior to 2020 we would be in New York at least once a year uh, often cuz you know book expo america or some other uh, event that was taking place there and we would always tack on a few extra days for personal stuff and and we would walk and explore neighborhoods. And so a lot of, yeah, a lot of the character Michael Andrews was, was, you know, kind of wish fulfillment. Uh, you know, imagine living in this, uh, city, uh, and, and, and getting to explore all the different neighborhoods. So that was part of it. But I think when you can want to come back to the Canadian, um, the Canadian publishing scene is, is, is really interesting and unique because, we have uh, a good number of independent presses here in Canada that, I mean, we obviously have the, um, you know, Penguin Random House Canada, Simon and Schuster Canada, um, you know, HarperCollins Canada. <laughs> like we have the versions of the major international 
uh, publishers, but one of the publishers that I publish with, Dundurn, uh, I, I think of them as a small publisher because, you know, there's a team of like 20 or 25, maybe really awesome people that work in their office in downtown Toronto. And I realized I have, uh, I have six books with, uh, with Dundurn. And I realized that they're Canada's largest independent publisher. <laughs> uh, and yet they still have this, uh, this, this feel like you can actually talk to people. And, and I, and I, and I know it was a weird thing because, uh, in terms of publishing, if you're looking for success with, with a publisher, it's to understand what it is that they're doing and who they're trying to sell books to and how the book you want to write for them solves a problem that they have. And now I was lucky with Dundurn because I happened to be at a book industry event and I overheard a vice president of Dundurn talking and she said, we've always wanted to publish a book of ghost stories about Hamilton, Ontario. I tucked that little nugget away <laughs> and then I went and looked into the market and said, um, okay, uh, there's, there's lots of ghost stories for Hamilton, Ontario, which was the city I was living in at the time. Um, are there any books about uh, ghosts for Hamilton? Nope. Is there uh, uh, any tour? There's a, there was a tour group called Haunted Hamilton. Now there's two, uh, Haunted Hamilton and ghostwalks.com. And they're doing regular ghost tours of, of the city. There's, so there's obviously a demand for, uh, for ghostly stories. And uh, Hamilton, because it's so close to you know, Niagara Falls and the, and the border of the U.S., is figures prominently into Canadian history, the War of 1812, and, and a lot of the battle. Uh, that, that took place, the Stony Creek Battlegrounds is where, you know, uh, one of the allegedly haunted areas. So I pitched to them a book of ghost stories about Hamilton. And, and I used a sort of a Venn diagram uh, where I said, this is going to be a book that's going to be for people who uh, love ghosts or ghost stories, people who love history, maybe even Canadian history, because there's a lot of Canadian history embedded in it, and uh, people who love their city, who are passionate about the city of Hamilton. And so right in the, in, the, in the core middle of it was my ideal reader. And Dundurn turned around and within a week of me sending the proposal said, sure, hey, actually we'll fit it in this fall's catalog. Can you get it to us in uh, two weeks? <laughs> at, at which point I said, oh boy, I better write it now. So I took a week off work as a bookseller <laughs> so I could spend a week writing the book uh, to, to get it in. But, but I think uh, when you're thinking about success in publishing, uh, whether it's Canadian or, or, or whether it's uh, American or whatever, and, and look at the publishers that uh, you're interested in working with, if you're wanting to go uh, the traditional route, and look at, look at their markets and look at what, what's the competition? What are the comp titles? Are there any comp titles? Now, I did, I did come up with comp titles uh, for that pitch, too, because even though there were no books about ghosts uh, about Hamilton, uh, Canadian author John Robert Colombo has a like, great book of Canadian ghost stories and Ontario ghosts and stuff like that. And then there were books of history of Hamilton. And so I put those together uh, as sort of comp titles. So when, you, when you're thinking about that, uh, that's one way to approach it. Um, but I think like anything, uh, researching the market and understanding who the players are, who their audiences are and what kind of books they're looking for is, uh, is critical. The other thing that I think is critical is, um, is networking. Now we lost our, um, book expo Canada, uh, many, many years ago, uh, yeah. here in Canada, we just lost book expo America, but 
there are still other events. I know, for example, you've got the LA book fair and things like that, that that go on in your neck of the woods. And, and I'm sure that just because book expo America is gone, doesn't mean you're not going to be out there wanting to connect with writers uh, in all sorts of different uh, ways. I mean, I've, there's still the regional book festivals. There's a, you know, the regional trade shows that take place. I'm assuming you have that in Canada as well. Yeah, we have, uh, we're not as big. When you actually think about the population of Canada, you got to remember it's pretty much the same as the population of the state of California, right? We're all just spread across this big land, all, all probably on the border where it's warmer, uh, the majority of the population anyways. Um, just well, at, least for, at least for now, the way everybody's leaving, it's uh, maybe not for long. <laughs> but anyway, for now, I, I'll, I'll accept your conclusion. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, so we don't have as many of the regional fairs, although we do have a very active East Coast and West Coast. You know, so you've got like in yeah. Nova Scotia, you've got fairs and, and really great book events I've been to. I've been to the same in, in British Columbia and Vancouver. And then, of course, Toronto thinks it's the center of the universe <laughs> here in, uh, in, in Canada. Well, you've got Toronto, we've got New York, both operate as though that's... Uh, yeah, that's it's very similar. It's, it's our version of New York, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So on your... Um, I mean, it's obviously been a while because it hasn't been existed for several years. But when I used to attend the um, Canadian Book Expo, I was I was impressed with how the question I was like, okay, so what do you have that's Canadian centric? They wanted something that can that Canada fit in to yeah. the storyline, and so is that still a factor on getting published in Canada? You know that you need that because I mean you've bridged over with your at least with this one book series that you're doing here with uh you got Canadian werewolf now, you know, circumscribing the United States. Yeah. Uh, is that still a factor? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, uh, especially because I studied English language and literature and a lot of, uh, because Canada is besides such a giant, the U S we often have to define ourselves as not U S in many ways, especially to the rest of the world. Uh, like, you know, cause you know, America, we, we're all Americans, technically North Americans, right? South America, right. North America we're all American. Um, uh, but then there's the United States of America and then there's Canada. And so I think we, we kind of have to stand tall and wave the Canadian flag proudly because maybe because it's fear of that loud neighbor who's always having a big giant house party. And so we have to play our music relatively loud to hear it. And we actually have in Canada uh, Canadian content laws for the media. So, for example, television, radio has to play 30% or 40% Canadian content, which is a great opportunity for Canadian writers and artists and performers to actually get exposure because otherwise they would be drowned out in, a, in, a, in the global marketplace, especially with our, uh, our very powerful neighbors to the south. So a lot of publishers, I know, for example, with uh, Dundurn and with a couple of other Canadian publishers that I've worked with, when they send me a contract, they also send me something to sign that says I'm a Canadian author, uh, which means they're probably getting grant money from uh, from the, the federal government to publish Canadian authors because it helps support them. Mm-hmm. I also... Um, uh, and then there's provincial ones as well. I know Alberta, for example, has a lot of great grants for 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 writers there. And I know states would probably have something similar to that if you're in the U.S. But I think one of the other things that uh, Canadians have access to, which is amazing, is um, there's an International Public Lending Rights Commission. 
And there's a Canada participates in that. And that means as a Canadian author, I actually get compensated for my books appearing in public libraries. And, and that's quite a hearty compensation. So I think, I think there is an opportunity to demonstrate, um, Canadian, uh, citizenship or Canadian, um, sent sentimentalities, Canadian perspective, Canadian experience. And I think a lot of publishers out of Canada are going to probably pick up on that. I think, I think, uh, for example, when you think about, uh, Neil Peart, uh, the drummer from, uh, Canadian rock band Rush, Neil uh, spent the last 20 years of his life in LA yeah, and uh, you know, fell in love uh, with somebody down there. Has a ton of friends down there, and, and was living well when he wasn't traveling the world, you know, raising his family uh, there. But um, he was still publishing with a, a, a wonderful Canadian uh, uh, publisher, ECW Press. And again, ECW Press is a beautiful, phenomenal uh, press with a great publisher and editors. And I've had the good fortune of of getting to work with them. Uh, even uh, uh, being in one of their uh, books. And I can imagine that he really enjoyed working with these people because it. I think his very first publisher was a small East Coast publisher, very small East Coast publisher. And I think he liked that hands-on, down-to-earth sort of. Uh, I remember, you know, I mentioned Kevin J. Anderson, who who's, uh, uh, was a good friend of uh, Neil Peart's as well. I remember Kevin, the first time... I took him out as a business person when I was working at Kobo and I thought, well, Hey, he did an event for us in 2014. Why don't I take you out for dinner and some drinks? And I remember I brought him to this pretty lowbrow uh, beer, beer pub in, uh, in oh, Hell's you, Kitchen. You hit it right between the eyes on that one then. <laughs> I know. And, and I didn't really know. I just knew he liked beer and I'm like, oh, okay. So I talked to a friend who lived in New York. I said, where was a good place? And he said, we well, got to go to the pony bar. They got the best craft beer in New York. And so I took him there and, and he got there before me. He texted me and, and, you know, he's this big shot New York Times bestselling author. I'm this, you know, struggling author wannabe kind of uh, thing, like looking up to him. And, and, and I had no idea just how down to earth Kevin was uh, at that time. And I remember I showed up and I went, oh my God, they're like beer barrels for tables. Like it's not, not a classy place at all. And I felt so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my God, I, that you know, I'm going to treat him to this, whatever. And then, and then we were walking uh, back to our respective hotels afterwards. And he says, I just want to thank you. Every time, like I meet with, you know, my uh, agent or editors or anything in New York, they always take me to these fancy restaurants where there's like 12 different pieces of cutlery and I don't know what to use and stuff like that. He goes, this was a perfect night. I just got to relax, let my hair down and enjoy myself. Uh, and, and, but anyway, so it's that down to earth, I think, um, that you can kind of get, uh, working with a smaller publisher too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then in terms of, of getting published in Canada, then, so there is a definite, um, concern that either you are Canadian yourself or that your story takes place in, or at least ties yeah. in with Canada. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For example, one of the anthologies I edited for uh, Edge Publishing, science fiction publisher in Calgary, was um, it was an anthology of Canadian authored fiction. And uh, ironically, the only American who ever appeared in its pages was Neil Peart, because I published a story that Neil and Kevin co-wrote together. And and so yeah, so there are there are a lot of opportunities uh, for Canadian, but if you're not Canadian, there are still. I mean. 
publishers are looking for good content. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Canadian content if it satisfies their needs. So, for example, if if you're wanting to sell a, a novel or um, a memoir or whatever to a regional press that has a, f- a regional flavor, and, and this is a place you visited and you're familiar with or it's set there, there's no reason why, uh, even if you're not Canadian, that they're not going to take it seriously because they want good content regardless of who's writing it. Now, they will probably have some sort of bias towards Canadian. They'll probably have some bias towards own voices and things like that. Uh, But they're not going to be close-minded to, uh, you know, American authors or authors from anywhere else in the world who have a story to tell that is of value to their readership. Okay. Now, conversely, you're, you're a Canadian author have you had any issues or difficulties in breaking into the U.S. marketplace? Um, maybe not so much, but maybe that's because there's so many more publishers in the U.S. and so many more genres and niches. I there 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 may have been a few things that I couldn't enter, like a few uh, contests and a, and a few things that I've wanted to submit to, but they were uh, restricted to people from certain regions. But to be quite honest, I've never. You know, I've never felt like I was standing against a brick wall. That's never really felt like an issue to me, uh, whether it's, you know, U.S. or other countries. Okay, well, that's good to know. I, I just wanted to clarify that point because, like I said, it really impacted me when I was there several years ago, like I said, uh, off, you know, for, for multiple years at the Book Expo Canada that, you know, when I talk about Rise of the Future, if I had a Canadian winner, we're interested. If I didn't, then, okay, well will pass. And so um, yeah. it definitely made a difference when we had, obviously when we, I mean, I'm expecting this podcast to reach a lot of people in Canada. So we get a lot more entries to the contest. We have some more winners and um, life goes on there in Canada with uh, Rise yeah. of the Future. So if, if you have winners in, in the annual anthology, I could see booksellers being more likely to want to carry it, especially sure. if local, right? Like, Hey, this, the winner, is 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 from our province or the winner is from our city i mean that would be when i was a bookseller i would look for any reason to hand sell a book to someone so that's probably why they were prompting you for stuff like that hey you've got like you know 15 15 stories here are there any canadians yeah no that i I can track with that and we did experience a few years ago when rob sawyer had a short story in in rise of future i don't know 31 or 32 it sold amazingly well in canada because yeah. it, has, it has Sawyer's story in it. Yeah, and obviously Rob is a is a treasured uh, <laughs> is a is a treasured uh, Canadian writer who um, is well respected. So yeah, I, I could see booksellers going. Yeah, of course, Rob. Sawyer. Yeah. So um, now, having attended Writers of the Future, I'd also like to discuss its impact on science fiction and fantasy overall, as well as in Canada. I know there are several winners from Canada over the years. Yeah. Um, Alan Gardner, I think is his name. Um, uh, James Alan Good. Jim lives in Waterloo here with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, not with yeah, me, but in the same city, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, I think he was one of the first winners there. And um, yeah. Stephen Kotowicz, I think, won. Uh, Tony Pye was one. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm proud because I was editing an anthology. Stephen sent me a story, and, and I had to – uh, there was an issue with the publisher and I suggested to Stephen, I said, you know, you really should send this somewhere else because it could be forever before this gets published. 
And then he sent it to Writers of the Future and he won. <laughs> I was like, yes, awesome. So here's the impact that Writers of the Future. And he was a grand prize winner too. And he was a grand too. prize winner. And I was like so proud because he wrote the story for me. And then he won on a, 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 your very prestigious contest. I'm like, yes, awesome. So I kind of took a little bit of pride in that. Uh, for sure. Because one little anecdote about that too because he was a, a first place quarterly winner. So there's four there's four people that could have a chance of winning the grand prize winner any given year. And one of the judges had come up to him and said, don't worry, you didn't win. So he was like, ah, oh, good. And so when his name was announced, um, he was absolutely shocked because he, he, <laughs> he knew he hadn't won. And so when his name came up, it's like he didn't even hear it. It had, it had to sink in. And then he was oh, just... Wow. It was just funny how he told the story, how that how that had occurred. But anyway, and he's oh a real nice guy. But anyway, that's hilarious. So I mean, well, I remember when I was starting in writing, and 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 I looked for the highest paying markets. I looked for the markets that would get me the best amount of money for a short story, as well as the best exposure to readers. And when I look at what Writers of the Future does for writers in terms of that prestige, in terms of the, I mean, the, the, the money that they win, but also being published in such a professional, well-respected, internationally recognized uh, annual anthology for decades and decades and judged by some of the finest science fiction writers in the universe. Well, I can say on Earth, but I, I don't know of any on other planets, but so I'll say in the universe. So it's and, a safe one. Yeah, it's a, it's a safe one for now, at least. But yeah, exactly. I think the other thing too, having been uh, having been there and witnessed the amazing opportunity that writers get when they get to come and spend a week with so many phenomenal people from the industry and learn about the business of writing and publishing from so many different people, get to meet each other and learn about each other and work together, and it, it is it is. Unlike anything uh, most writers will ever get to experience in their life, the gala that is thrown, I remember just, you know, it was a black tie event. And I remember walking around and looking at the smiles and the love and, and the camaraderie in that room and just thinking, wow, imagine your very first professional sale <laughs> is this. Like this is, this is a pinnacle uh, of an author's career. And when I think about all of the amazing New York Times bestsellers that have that were discovered uh, mm -hmm. through the writers and illustrators of the of the future contest, uh, I'm in awe. It, it's kind of like it's it's almost like um, you know, there's certain regional awards. When someone wins a regional award, you know they're going to go on to to something bigger. And it's kind of like, well, if if they've been in, you know either shortlisted or they've, they've been in the pages of Writers of the Future or, or they've they've even you know gotten that uh, certificate in the mail, uh, that's an indication that there's some quality that this writer is going to go on to be something. Uh, and and that's one of the few uh, consistent landmarks in our industry for. For decades now, like you can look on the at the in the pages of Writers of the Future, and you're like, oh yeah, that that author's going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, we're getting we're assembling now, Volume Thirty Seven, and that'll come out later wow. this year. Wow. Yeah. Man. So, um, in terms of now, the the competition was actually created by Elwin Hubbard in 1983, and a lot of the direction that's used in there are based on essays that he wrote 
in the 30s and 40s for aspiring writers back then that a lot of our judges still find as pertinent now as it was when he first wrote them. Uh, Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers, and Dave Wolverton are the, are the three main judges that teach the workshop. And right. then there's the 20-some-odd um, judges that will come in and do guest lecturing at the uh, awards week on their specific, you know, like an hour of their specific aspect of science fiction or fantasy. Is there any particular favorite article or story by Owen Hubbard that you have or that you found especially um, significant for a writer or as a writer? Yeah, I remember it was probably it was probably the early 80s when I discovered um, uh, the novel Fear, uh, uh-huh. which was uh, which is intriguing because it involves lost time and it and it was like an academic environment and it was this really cool uh, hook to it i don't, I don't want to give away the ending but um because of course i can't remember the ending all the time but it was later i mean i think i think that was my introduction to to his writing uh, as a horror author and then and then realizing he had done such an incredible number of pulp fiction stories and uh i think it was uh what was it dead men kill uh uh-huh. was one of them and that's uh, Detective Terry Lane, I think it was. Terry uh, Lane, yeah. Yeah. And then the Carnival of Death. Like, so there's these stories. And, and here's the thing that I think is, is, is it's, it's, you know, I talked about how uh, the big publishers uh, were doing things way back when, and they've become the big publishers. And, 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 and it's like this cyclical uh, circle of life. And I think about the pulp fiction that L. Ron Hubbard was writing like hundreds and hundreds of short stories and articles. And he was just writing and, and he was satisfying the readers who couldn't get enough of the fantastical tales, uh, you know, speculative tales and, and the genre and the, and the macaw, like all, all like across the genres, right? Like, you know, noir and horror and, and, and sci-fi and fantasy and all of those things. And when I look at today and uh, eBooks and the proliferation of eBooks, you see that same spirit of people wanting to write stories that they're passionate about sharing with readers that are passionate about reading. And, and you think about that legacy, you think about, it's almost like we're in a, we're in a return or a renaissance of pulp, Mm -hmm. but it's not pulp paper. It's pulp digital, digital pulp. And, and, and I look back and I was like, wow, uh, he was on to something, <laughs> he really, and, but then the fact that he took his, his good fortune and turned it into trying to help other writers and create this contest that can help, you know, build a foundation where other writers can build a career on it. I mean, look at a lot of the folks who are the, the judges uh, of the contest today. Many of them came through uh, the contest, you know, J- James Allen Gardner, exactly. for example, you know, uh, yeah. local you know, like uh, Jim was a winner uh, early on and has continued to go on into a very successful writing and publishing career. And so I just think, wow, what a what an impact to have, what a legacy uh, to leave, uh, to, to be able to prop up other, other writers uh, still today. So would you encourage aspiring writers to enter Writers of the Future? No. No, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. No, of course I would. I mean, I think it is when, when you look at the markets, if you've, uh, I used to, when I started, it was like Writer's Digest uh, magazine and you looked at the different markets that were available and there's very few markets that will not only uh, give you the, the, the opportunity of recognition and pay, 
right? So you get the two, not just one. Sometimes it's recognition with right. no, no or little pay, or sometimes it's pay with very little recognition. This gives you both. But then the other thing that, the, that it, it awards you an opportunity is to become part of a community and to learn from other writers who've been in the industry for decades. And I mean, I think about all of the, all of the judges and all of the people who have, have been there mentoring uh, young writers uh, over the years. And I think, wow, you're not just entering a contest, you're really signing up for an opportunity to, to learn and grow. And, and, and that's a lifelong learning and growing, right? It may start when you're a young writer and you haven't had a, a single professional sale yet, but think, I think about all of the things that, uh, that you get, that you get out of it that are well beyond just winning a prize. <laughs> uh, and, and that's a significant, and that, and that can't be stated, you know, emphatically enough that that is something that some writers will win contests and some writers will win, uh, you know, get to get published in, in big, in big things. But to, to have all of those things uh, at once is, is still, I, I can't think of anywhere else, especially for people who want to write speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror. I can't think of uh, any other market that would offer them that magnitude of opportunity. Uh, yeah. you, you'd be silly like me, you would be silly not to keep submitting as much as possible to a contest like, uh, to like this. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I look back now, you know, as, uh, you know, I can't anymore because of professional sales, but I was like, oh man, I should have submitted more often. <laughs> I shouldn't have taken that, you know, one or two rejections as a, as a sign. I should have, I should have just kept going. I should have kept trying because, yeah, you know, you got, got better over the years, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously. <clears throat> we had one winner who had submitted 47 times before he finally won. Wow. But for those who don't know, Writers of the Future is free to enter. It's open to all amateur writers. It uh, doesn't matter of your age, nationality, sex. They're just um, We have entries from every English-speaking country in the world right now. Wow. And... You can, there's, it's, the year is broken into four quarterly contests, so you can actually submit four times a year. And that's one of the things that Kevin Anderson talked about He when he proed out, and, but after he became a judge and he went on the stage and when he had his first um, essay published in one of the Writers of the Future books, and he, he stood up and said, I've finally been published in Writers of the Future, you know, waving his hands over his head. But he said one of, the things, one of the things he got out of the the contest was how to write to a deadline and to keep on writing and, and not quit, just keep on going. And that's one of the things that Mr. Hubbard gives is his advice, as well as pretty much every other judge, a writer writes and you keep on writing. And and both Mr. Hubbard as well as like that several of the judges say, Well, you're gonna throw away your first half million, million words. You know, you're just gonna until you actually build up a style and you can just you don't have to think pronoun, noun, comma, semicolon. You just you're thinking story and able to just translate immediately onto your typewriter or your computer or whatever to uh, get that story on there. So that's that's one of the big lessons with Writers of Future. And by the way, our forum, the Writers of Future Forum, just won an award this past week, uh, the Critters Award, which is um, a community science fiction fantasy community award as the as the best forum available. We've got the forum, we've got the contest, we've got the blog, and we also have this podcast, which is an award-winning podcast now. And it goes out, you'll have anywhere between 150 and 200,000 listens for every episode now. So it's it's really, really growing well. And um, 
is something that anybody listening to this podcast, if you aren't familiar with it, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. That is a great way of putting it. Nothing to lose and everything to gain is actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah brilliant. Yes. So um, any tips or suggestions you have for aspiring writers in general, or if you want to be a Canadian specific, that's fine too. <laughs> well, if you're Canadian, you're going to potentially uh, spell meter and color differently than <laughs> friends in the U.S. But Which, by um, way, we publish in your, however you submit it, whatever form of English you do is what we now publish in the Writers of the Future books. So if it's oh, really? Canadian oh. English, that's what we publish. If it's, uh, if it's uh, UK English, that's what it is. If it's from Australia English, that's what we do. So we use wow. whatever, whatever's your version of English is what gets published in the book, just so you know. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Wow. Because even the Canadian yeah, publishers will go with here. American spelling because it saves space often. It's like, <laughs> it saves money. Um, but it also, if it's read by an American, they don't go, hey, they spelled color wrong. What's wrong with those people up there? But um, I think, I think, and I think you already kind of said this, but I'm just going to reiterate is, is, is don't give up. Every single time you put your, your fingers on the keyboard, and, and you and you write a story and you share a story and that story comes from your soul, it comes from your heart, it comes from your mind and goes onto the page. Every single word you lay down after one another becomes a brickwork for your writing and it gets better and better and better. And you will face, you said there was that one person who got 40 rejections before their acceptance. Kevin J. Anderson finally got into the pages of Writers of the Future with an essay. Um, like, don't give up. You're going to face challenges. You're going to face struggles. You're a storyteller. Your passion is to, is to share those stories. And um, the only difference between somebody who succeeds and somebody who doesn't succeed is the person who gave up before the success came. Uh, so that's something to remember. And I know it's hard, but um, it's that one extra, it's that one extra time that you get up and try one more time. And I really think um, if this is something you're passionate about and you believe in, there is somebody out there, a reader, that's probably going to be just as passionate to read and love the stuff that you're writing. So don't give up on yourself. That's great advice. So now for anybody not familiar with Mark Leslie and your uh, stories, what would you recommend as a, uh, as a first read? And you can break it down into, if you like this genre, then this, if you like that genre, then that. I think uh, I have uh, Snowman Shivers, which is a short uh, fiction collection. Then ebook is free on virtually every platform around the world. It is available in print and audiobook as well, but and you can ask for it at the library. But Snowman Shivers is great because it's speculative literature. It's got a little bit of humor like what you get in Canadian Werewolf. Uh, and that might be a, a place to check me out. And it's nice and short. If you don't like it, you haven't lost that much of your time. And I'm at uh, Mark Leslie. So Canadian. <laughs> I am so <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> so how does somebody find you? I cut you off when you were giving your, your how to find you. It's okay. I'm, I'm, you can find everything about me online at markleslie.ca. Great. Well, thank you very much, Mark. And thank you for listening. The Rise of the Future is a competition created by Elwin Hubbard in 1983 to provide a means for the aspiring writer, five years later, the aspiring artist, for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. This podcast is available as a national syndication on UPRN Network, as well as on all major platforms. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, John.